continue to give praise to him as we read Exodus 33, 12 through 17. Moses said to the Lord, see you say to me, bring up this, these, this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, I have found favor in your sight. Please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your, not your going with us so that we are distinct? I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. All right, be in your Bible in Exodus chapter 33. Turning your copy of the scriptures to Exodus chapter 33. We're continuing in our time in the book of Exodus. Actually, we're nearly out of Exodus. Hopefully you saw what I just did there. Out of Exodus, okay. It's early, allegedly. This next week is our last week in Exodus. And if you're curious, for this summer, we'll be going through First and Second Peter. Uh, but this week and next week are our last uh, times in the book of Exodus, a study I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, for the last several months. And I hope that you have uh, benefited uh, from it as well. Exodus chapter 33, we're going to be in verses 1 uh, through 23, just to bring you up to speed on where we're at. The people have left Egypt. Uh, they made it to Mount Sinai. They got to Mount Sinai, and Moses went up to get the law from God, the covenant from God. And uh, while Moses was up on the mountain, they uh, created an idol in the form of a golden calf that they worshipped. And therefore, uh, Moses went down, and he broke the covenant, the Ten Commandments, on the ground. And God has said uh, he is going to uh, lead them into the promised land, but he's not going with them anymore. And so now we find ourselves in Exodus 33, which is Moses and God sort of hashing out how this is going to work. The people have abandoned God by worshiping an idol, and God is, uh, as you might expect, a little bit upset by this. And what is the nature of the relationship going to be between God and his people now that he has saved them out of, ex out of Egypt, has given them his covenant, and now so quickly they have departed from it by worshiping an idol. And this is such a critical uh, thing for us to understand, and there are many ways that it uh, will inform us in our relationship with God as well. So Exodus 33, uh, 1 through 23, let's look at it. And Jeff read a little part of it, and uh, I am going to uh, also be reading other parts of it as well. So there'll be a little bit of Bible reading this morning, uh, so you'll want to have your, your finger there in Exodus chapter 33. What is, we're going to talk about the people of Israel having their eyes opened. And you say, what does it mean to have your eyes opened? Or maybe you're not saying that. I don't know what it means to have your eyes open. But what I'm talking about here, having your eyes open, is to have, uh, because of something happening in your life, a new perspective uh, on things around you, right? You might go in your backyard this time of year, especially when it's uh, sunny out, and you say, oh, I love the springtime because it's beautiful to see the trees and the garden and the plants and whatever. And then, maybe on a spur of a moment, you decide, well, I've never been to Yosemite. I'm going to drive down to Yosemite, and then you see what real outdoor beautiful looks like, right? Now your, back, your backyard seems a little lame. You say, oh, okay, now I see what the great outdoors looks like. I thought my backyard was nice. This is clearly what God's backyard looks like. Or if you experience a tragedy, if you experience a sudden discovery that something bad is going to happen in your life or others, suddenly in one day something bad can happen and your perspective gets changed. Most of us in in this country, experiencing that in September 11th. September 10th was one kind of day, and September 12th was a wholly different kind of day. One event just sort of changed how everything looked. Eyes were open to sort of a, a new perspective. Or in our life, sometimes we make mistakes from time to time. I only make mistakes on weekdays and weekends. Other than that, I'm mistake-free. 
And then sometimes those mistakes happen and it's no big deal. And then years later, the ripples from those mistakes show up. All of a sudden, oh no, I had no idea this was going to be the price for that mistake. And now my perspective on that decision years ago has fundamentally changed. And what we're going to see in a conversation with God between Moses and the Lord and his people is their eyes are going to be opened and their perspective on everything is going uh, to change. So I'm going to read Exodus 33, 1 through 6. The first six verses, the people of Israel having their eyes open to the disaster of life without God. Eyes open to the disaster of life without God. Keeping in mind um, they have just worshipped the calf and now they've suffered the consequences for it. Here's the conversation. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked means stubborn. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people, if for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that is their jewelry and whatnot, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. The eyes of the people of Israel, eyes open to the disaster of life without God. They see suddenly now the repercussions for their decision to worship an idol, and now they see the disaster that is upon them, God is going to send them on their way, but he's not going to go with them. Maybe you've heard of the ship, the Titanic. It was crossing the Atlantic Ocean. It hit an iceberg, if you're not sure, uh, and then it sank, which was in incredible because the, the ship before it left, it was described as the unsinkable ship. Apparently, that wasn't accurate. One of the interesting things about the Titanic sinking is they had um, uh, what they called wireless, basically telegraph machines that would exchange messages, and other ships were sending warnings to the Titanic that in the ice field that they were going through, there was quite a bit more glaciers than they maybe would have expected, and they were to be aware of it. And they would get these telegrams, and the telegrams would come in, and then the telegram would be passed off to an officer so he could take it, notify the person in charge of how fast the ship is going, and tell them uh, the appropriate warning so they could make the, the decision to either slow down or speed up or turn sideways, I don't know, whatever you might do to avoid hitting a giant piece of ice. The message that was to be relayed to the officer would have this message on the top. Master's Service Graham, MSG, Master's Service Graham. And if it had that Master's Service Graham on it, it would go to the top of all of the stack of messages and it would be prioritized to get to the officer. Oh, this one says Master's Service Graham on it. It's really important, so therefore let's get it to the guy in charge of the, driving the boat or the ship, right? Well, the warnings were being relayed without including Master's Service Graham on them and so they were just queued for distribution whenever they came up and because... So many of the passengers were also sending messages to a loved one here and there. Many of those warning messages never even got to the officers because it didn't have the presence of Master Service Graham. The warning was given. The warning was useless because it didn't have the presence of the message, Master Service Graham. And what the people of Israel are discovering now about their journey is their journey is going to go forward without the presence of God. And what are they saying among themselves, they're saying, this is a disaster. The journey now is as useless as those warnings were to the officers of the Titanic. 
Without God on this journey, this journey is a waste of time. Their eyes were open to their disaster without God. Look at everything God promises to them in Exodus 33. Look at what he says. Go from here. I brought you out of Egypt, and I'm going to send you to the promised land, and your offspring will get it. Look at what else he says. I will drive out everybody in the land, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Central Pointites. <laughs> They're all going to be driven out. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. So what is going to happen, God is saying, you are going to get everything I have promised you, but you will not get me. And the people of Israel, their eyes were opened to this because it said the people heard this disastrous word and they mourned. Listen to what God is saying. You are losing nothing of the promises I have promised you. I will give you everything you have promised except for me. And the eyes of the people of Israel were opened and they said, then everything you have promised is useless to us. If all we gain is God's stuff and we don't gain God, we've gained nothing. And it's a disaster. And their eyes were open to it. They were still going to have manna. They were still going to gain the promised land. The land was still going to be a land of milk and honey. All the enemies were still going to be driven out, but God wouldn't be with them, and the people freaked out. Their eyes were opened to the disaster of life without God in it. Let me put it this way. It is a grace of God in our lives when we realize how much we need Him. It is a grace of God in our lives when we come to that realization that we need God more than anything else. Many people will go their entire lives not realizing that without God they have nothing. It is God's grace alone that takes us to a point in our life where we say, without God, I have nothing. And the reason I say it's a grace of God is because many times the things which lead us to that conclusion is because we've lost everything, isn't it? Isn't that when we sort of come to that conclusion? We realize we can live only by God alone because by His grace, He took away everything else we wanted. Something occurs in our life. We lose our health. We lose a loved one. We lose a job. We lose security. We lose something in our life. And we come to that point point. we say, I need God because I have nothing else. And we have to understand that is God's grace, that He has brought us to a point through difficulty where we say, boy, I'm glad I'm rid of that thing, because with that thing, I had failed to see how much I need God alone. That is God's grace to bring us to the point where we realize how much we need Him. This is not an understanding that life without God leads to disaster. That's how we tend to think about this. Without God, at some point in the future, I will face a disaster. What the people of Israel are realizing, what I hope we realize, is that life without God is a disaster, regardless of the kinds of circumstances you might live in. You might live with relative comfort and ease, peace and prosperity. Without God in that, your life still is a disaster. It's even worse, you may not realize it's a disaster. Life without God doesn't merely lead to disaster. The people of Israel realize life without God, regardless of our circumstances, is defined as a disaster. Maybe I could put it this way. There is no worse disaster in your life than life without the Lord. Our eyes must be open to the disaster of life without God. Look at the last few verses, verses 4, 5, and 6. The people heard this disastrous word that God was going to give them everything they wanted without Him. And they mourned. That was the appropriate response. And they took off their jewelry, keeping this in mind. Where did they get their jewelry? They got them from the Egyptians. When they left Egypt, all the Egyptians gave them their stuff. So they left Egypt with a whole bunch of stuff. Jewelry, gold earrings, gold necklaces, gold chains on their pants to hold their wallet in their pocket. I'm sure there were some hipsters in Israel. 
they had all this stuff. Then what they did is they took all of that jewelry, melted or some of it anyway, melted it down and turned it into that idol that they worshipped. And so now as they were wearing that jewelry, they were realizing that even their wearing the jewelry was a way of saying, we like our stuff more than God. So as an act of worship that we want God alone, they took off the stuff that was connected with their distraction from God alone. And they said, we're not going to wear that jewelry. We know where that goes. We thought that gave ourselves a sense of comfort and peace and security. But in fact, all that stuff brings us insecurity because it reminds us of how quickly we turn from the Lord. Fasting from something that is good to worship God through mourning. Another way of saying this, fasting from their stuff was an acknowledgement of God's value in their life. Take off their ornaments, put it in the dresser to say, I don't need that stuff if I have God. If I have to choose between my stuff and God, I'll take God only. And so they set aside their ornaments as an act of worship, recognizing they want God and God alone. God is the value, the key value, supreme value of our community. Eyes open to the disaster of life without God. Now, We'll just finish this part up with this. Say what you want to about Israel. And we could say a number of things about the people of Israel throughout their history. But we will acknowledge this in this passage. Ask yourself this question. If God gave you everything you ever wanted, if God right now in this moment gave you everything you ever wanted in life, everything you've ever dreamed of in this life, God just simply says, you know what? It's on. You got it. And he gives you everything you ever wanted. Here's the question. Would you still want him? Oh, of course, in this moment. Of course I would. Try me, God. Let's, let's give it a shot. Seriously, though, if God gave you everything you ever wanted, would you still want God himself? The people of Israel, for all their warts and wrinkles and faults and problems throughout their history, and they have a lot of them, and they're really, really bad. In this moment, God said, I will give you everything you want. Peace, prosperity, your own land, victory over your enemies, a land flowing milk and honey, everything you've ever wanted. And what did they say? If you won't go with us, God, no thank you. They said, we know that we will yearn for that stuff instead of you. God, if you won't go with us, this is a disaster. Eyes open to the disaster of life without God. All right, let's keep going. Look at verses 7 through 11. Part of this is what Pastor Jeff read for us. They understand they have lost God. And now in these a few verses here, on top of that, they have the opportunity to see what they are missing. They have lost God, meaning God's relationship with them is broken. But in Moses' relationship with God from afar, the people of Israel get to observe what relationship with God might look like. Look at verse 7 through 11. I know. Well, no, Jeff didn't read these parts, did he? I'm confused. Verses 7 through 11. I'm confused. First time ever. Look at verse 7, Exodus 33, 7 through 11. Here's what it says. Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Uh, just real quick aside, this is not the tabernacle. This is before they built the tabernacle. This is the tent of meeting Moses would build where he would meet with the Lord. Verse 8. Whenever Moses went out to the tent... All the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door. And he would watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. That is the tent of meeting. Verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of the cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his own tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant, Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. 
verses 7 through 11, eyes open to life with what? I should say this. I misspoke. Eyes open to what life with God could be. The people of Israel had their eyes open to the disaster of life without God, and now observing Moses' relationship with God, their eyes are open to what life with God could be. Now, every now and then, if you're married, your wife is going to ask you, fellas, to watch a romantic movie. Of course, the one that comes to mind, what? Doing this? Okay, to each his own, knock yourself out. Everybody's got their own thing. I won't say your name, Howard. <laughs> um, the notebook comes to mind. Okay, guys, who have been down that fiery road of suffering? That is the notebook. Who's seen it? Oh, it's still a Baptist church. We're not allowed to say we've seen a movie. Okay. Your wife will say, we want to watch this romantic movie. And so you watch this movie, and it's got this guy who's pursuing this woman. And, and this guy, of course, is a hunter, a PhD in microbiology. He sows. He cares for orphans and widows. He, he is able to craft his own canoe with his bare hands, without a shirt on, of course. <laughs> He's 50 years old, but has the body and hair of a 22-year-old. He speaks multiple languages, and of course, the movie comes to that moment where they stand outside in the rain and have an argument. I tell you what, if I'm having an argument with somebody, it could be rain. I'm not going to stay out in the rain and do it. And so you watch this movie, and you say, okay, I'm never going to live up to this. What planet does this guy exist on? Because it's not this planet. And so we look at this, but this is never going to be how it is. So you tell your wife, enjoy this movie, because it never happened over here. Enjoy it. But they see, well, what could life be like if I was like this? Well, it's never going to happen. Well, the people are seeing Moses like They're seeing, here's God himself, and Moses is meeting with God face to face, and now they are relegated to worshiping just at the door of their tent, sort of looking, oh, man, I wonder what's going on in there. I wonder, no, I, I could never get in there. Here's the thing that happened to the people of Israel. They wanted God they could worship close by, so they crafted him out of gold into a gold cow. So they wanted a God they could worship close by, and so they made themselves a golden calf to worship. As a result now, because their relationship with God was so rended apart, so ripped apart, they now could not worship God himself close by. And their eyes are now open to the the rebellion and disobedience in their heart has resulted in this great gulf between them and the one God who could actually satisfy their soul and worship. They wanted to worship God, so they worshiped an idol close by, and now as a result, they worship God from afar. And their eyes are opened to it. Moses, they see, going into the tent of meeting and meeting with him, meeting with God face to face, and the people of Israel are standing in their tent looking off into the distance. What must it be like to have a relationship with God where you can meet with him? Well, we don't know. We've, we've ruined that relationship, and now our eyes are opened to it. Day in and day out, Moses gets to have that kind of relationship. We have to stand in our tents and just, ah, I blew it. I blew it. I might ask this question, what kind of relationship do you want with God? What kind of relationship do you desire to have with God? We, I could say it this way in reverse. What kind of relationship what does God want to have with you? The Bible makes it abundantly clear. God wants a close, personal, face-to-face relationship with you. The people of Israel had their eyes opened that they also desired that same thing, yet at that moment they couldn't have it. What kind of relationship do we desire with God? God desires a close, face-to-face, in fact, friendship with us. Look what Jesus says about this in John chapter uh, 14, verse 8. John 14, verse 8. One of his disciples asks him this question, Philip, as a matter of fact. Philip said to him, that is, Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and that is enough for us. 
Show us the Father, and that is enough for us. So here's Philip saying what the Israelites displayed in their actions. Oh, show us the Father, and they're standing in their tents going, you can't see him. And Philip is having that same yearning in his heart that he might see God, and Jesus says this, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus' ministry is intended to draw his followers into face-to-face relationship with God. Jesus is God, and he draws us into face-to-face relationship with God. That's his, his desire for us. Jesus is saying to Philip, Philip, don't you get the goal here? The goal is for you to see me, and then therefore you have seen the Father. In fact, Jesus says this is the whole idea. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, in what we call the Beatitudes, just a very short verse. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This may be hard to think about. We need to understand what Jesus is saying here. The reward for presence with him is presence with him. The reward for our hearts being pure is God himself. He's saying here's the reward for those who live a pure life. The reward is to be able to see God himself. It's to be able to behold him face to face in friendship, 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says the same thing in a little different terms. For now we see in a mirror dimly, that is today in this life, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, that is when we are in glory with God, we will see him face to face. Now we know in part, but then we will know fully, even as we have been fully known. Let me put this all, these few verses into a summary here. Jesus' ministry, ministry of redemption by giving his life on the cross and raising from the dead is intended to take all of our sin on himself so we are left with what kind of heart? When we trust him, our heart is pure. We are made righteous with the righteousness of Christ when we put our faith in Christ because his death on the cross paid for our sin And his resurrection from the grave provides us life that lasts forever. And so as a result is we don't have to be pure. We are what? Made pure. And as a result of what Christ has given us in his righteousness, we then have the glory of seeing God face to face. Here in this moment, we see dimly. We read the word, we we pray, and we see a bit of the Lord, but it's like looking in a mirror that hasn't been cleaned properly. But one day we will stand before God and we will see him face to face. Let me put it another way. The joy of glory, the joy of heaven will be face to face friendship with God forever. The reward of heaven, the reward of eternal life, the reward for having righteousness in Christ alone is to get to be with God face to face forever. What's the best thing about heaven? That's where God is. Now, there won't be sickness there. That's nice. There won't be tears there, except for maybe tears of joy. There won't be death there. That's good. There will be all-you-can-eat ice cream there, of course. That will, I made that part up. I don't know. I'm just assuming What makes heaven heaven? That's where God is. As one author has put it, if you don't want to be with God, you don't want to go to heaven. That is the whole bit of heaven. The whole draw, the whole pull, the whole excitement for going to heaven is you get to see God himself. If you're casually disinterested in God, you're not looking forward to heaven, you're looking forward to vacation. And that kind of heaven will not motivate you to make it through the Christian life, which involves suffering and difficulty and fear and suffering and difficulty. 
But then once that suffering and difficulty is over, it's fine. It gets worse. And then we see God. The, the draw of heaven is the fact that that's where God is, and we get to see him face to face. Let me put this a, another way. What is the fundamental result of an ongoing, growing relationship with Christ for the Christian? One of the fundamental results of a, a growing Christian life is we learn over time anything besides a face-to-face relationship with God is lame. We, we, over time, as we get to know the Lord better, will be learning to say, if I don't get to see God, it's not good enough. So often as Christians, we settle for much lesser things. Oh, Lord, if you will give me a parking space close to the Walmart door, I will obey you for like 20 minutes. When I go through the self-checker, I promise not to use profanity when it doesn't work. It tells me to take the item I haven't scanned off the thing. Anybody have this happen? I scanned it. Then we have a conversation. Then I confess. Then the Walmart person comes over and says to me, have you been separated from your group? <laughs> it's embarrassing. That's awkward. I'm not, no, I'm not with a group. I just want to pay for my toilet paper. I don't know why we're talking about this. But that's what we want our Christian life. Lord, if you will just simply give me a good parking spot, if you will just simply pay this bill, if you will make it so I'll get along with those person, if you will make it so I'll get better. These are all good things. You should pray and ask for these things. These are okay things. But, if, but what about the presence of God? If you were to encounter with God in a new and powerful way that you could never encounter unless you were sick, Would you want to stay sick? And the people of Israel said this, you can keep your promised land if you're not going to be there. You can keep it. As we learn this God that has made himself known to us through Christ himself, as we read his word and we encounter him and the power of his glory and the immensity of his love and grace, we will grow to get to the point that says, The reward of the Christian life is nothing other than we gain God himself and he wants to be friends and hang out and talk. And that is reward. Eyes open to the disaster of life without God. Eyes open to what life with God could be is what the people of Israel saw. Is there any way that this could change for the people of Israel? Is there any way that they could have a relationship that they desired. Eyes open to the glory of God's grace. Look at Exodus 32, 12 through 23. I'm gonna, Jeff read it already. I'm going to read it again because it's so important to understanding this passage of Scripture. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said to me, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Know, now, therefore... If I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. That's verse 13. What is this? Moses arguing with God. Moses wants to clear the air with God, and he's coming after him, full steam ahead. God says this, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Moses, my, I'm going to go with you. I will give you rest. I've heard you. I'll go with you, Moses. Those other ne'er-do-wells, forget about it. Moses, you and I, though, are pals. I'll go with you. Moses said to him, verse 15, If your present will not withgo me, do not bring us up from here. Look at the pronoun change. you see that? If you won't go with me, don't bring us up. He's... He's a smart guy. Moses is a smart guy. For how shall it be known I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with who? Us. So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you 
by name. And then Moses says, show me your glory. Stop there. We'll read the rest in a minute. Eyes open to the glory of God's grace. Moses goes in and God is starting with, I won't, I'm not going with you anywhere. And, and then Moses argues with him and, and God says, okay, I'll go with you. And then Moses says, no, 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 not good enough. You have to go with us. What do we call that when one person argues with God on behalf of another person? There's a fancy word for that. It's called mediator. Moses goes in and he wants to make an agreement between God and the people. And God says, I'm not going with you. And Moses says, what's up with that? That's in the Hebrew. And God says, okay, fine, I'll go with you, Moses. And Moses goes, no, you're going with us. And God says what? In verse 17, this very thing you have asked for, I will do. Mediation is when one guy goes in, he negotiates an agreement between two parties. So what you might have is a, a, a business, a wealthy individual, and maybe a person who works for them, a low-level employee. Something goes wrong in their employee, employer relationship, and so mediation occurs. They go into the meeting, and there's the mediator, Moses. There's the Fortune 500 company, and this low-level, line-level employee. And Moses turns to the owner and says, hey, will you do me a favor? And the owner of the company goes, what? Will you just give him everything he wants? And the owner goes, I was hoping you would ask. Absolutely, I will. Now, none of us have ever experienced that in mediation, have we? That's not how it works. But this is precisely what God was hoping Moses would do. Moses goes in to negotiate the relationship between the people of Israel and God himself. And Moses says to God, you know what I would really like, God, is for you to give Israel everything they want to need, which is your presence. And God essentially is saying, I was just hoping you would ask that. Let me put it this way. God is pleased with audacious mediators. God is pleased with bold mediators. God is pleased with mediators who ask for the moon. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. It's probably up on the screen. I'm going to read a couple of verses before it. This is what Isaiah the prophet says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. He will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John went out in the wilderness and appealed to the people, come out and be baptized and admit you're a dirty, rotten sinner. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem and everybody came out and were baptized in him, confessing their sins. And verse 8 says this of Mark chapter 1, I have baptized you with water, but he that is Christ will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So John comes in and he begins the process of creating a relationship between rebellious sinners and God by doing something bold and audacious. Let's all confess we're sinners. Let's all get baptized and get t-shirts that say, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. I went out to John and told him all the bad stuff I've ever done. And I expect God to forgive me because John says he's making way for the one who will bring that forgiveness. Acts chapter 19, verse 4, Paul reiterates that same thing about John the Baptist. Paul said, John baptized with baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. John comes in and gets everybody to understand, admit, we need, we need deliverance from our sin. Jesus comes in and through the cross and his resurrection mediates forgiveness through his sacrifice. He is the middleman who creates peace between us and God by going to God and saying, I've got an idea, God. How about you forgive them for everything they have ever done? And God says, absolutely I will. Because I love bold, audacious, crazy enough to ask for it, mediators. Moses comes to God and says, go with us. And God says, absolutely. Moses seeks to see God and he gets to see God. Because Moses' eyes were opened 
that God isn't a mean ogre. God's not a jerk. I don't know what has happened in our culture today. Somewhere at some point, somebody decided God is in a bad mood. God is simply waiting for a mediator to come in and say, God, I've got an idea. How about you just forgive them for everything they've ever done? And he says, that's the kind of thing I like to say yes to. And so now the Bible tells us Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. Over and over again, God, I have paid for their shortcomings, their sin. Eyes open. Moses' eyes were opened to the grace of God. So he goes into God's presence and says, we don't want the promised land unless you're going with us. And God says, I'm all in. Think about this. What did the people of Israel and Moses do to get God to like them in that moment? Did they offer an offering? Sacrifice? They take an offering? They do a public works project, a service project? Did they throw a party for God? What'd they do? They did none of these things. They just simply imposed themselves through Moses on God's grace. They just simply went in and said, God, will you forgive us for everything we've done? He says, I will go with you to the promised land. This is what God has been like from the beginning. Let's be clear. God didn't send Jesus on the cross because of all his other plans got ruined. God sent Jesus on the cross because that's what he's into. Mediators who boldly ask for forgiveness for dirty, rotten sinners like you and me. Eyes open to the glory of God's grace. Moses is saying, if you won't go, we won't go. I don't want the promised land without you. Would you take heaven if God wasn't there? Big mansion, streets of gold, harps, apparently, clouds, naked babies with wings. I'm just going off of precious moments. All my theology is from a precious moments mug. Moses is saying, I wouldn't. If heaven doesn't have God, it's hell. Moses is saying, I want to be where you are. And Moses is saying, me too. I should say God is saying, me too. God, in fact, is pleased to have Moses impose on his nature of grace, his nature of love, and God's nature of wanting to be with his people. God is pleased to have us impose on his grace. Has anybody sinned this week? Just Seth and me. Okay. Got to start the message, a different message then, actually. Of course you have. You've sinned during this sermon. I won't list it how. It's embarrassing. I won't list, I won't say how. And we go to God and we say, oh, God, I blew it again. Listen, God, I promise I will never do it again. Listen, I promise. If you, I, no, really, I'm serious. And you think, okay, I got to act like I'm really sorry. How do I look sad? Have you ever done this? Okay, but in, but in fact, I'm not terribly sad about it. I'm sad that maybe it caused some problems, but actually, if it happens again, I'm kind of okay with it. Now it's embarrassing. I feel like I'm the only one. Think about God biblically. That when we go in and say, God, I need to impose on your grace, he says, I love it when you do that. See, we don't think about God biblically. We think about God in a way that is defined by our experience here with people here we have wronged. I wronged my parents or my coworker or my boss, and I had to scrape and beg and pay them back to get over it. And even still, there's there's issues. And so we presume upon God's nature that he must be ticked and looking for reasons to be ticked. And I've got to sort of gin up the energy to sort of get him to get over it, right? Think about God biblically. God, I need forgiveness. He's like, yes, I've got so much of that. And it gives me the opportunity to hear from Jesus again about how he died for you. This is unbelievable. What a great day this is. We're going, but did you see how I blew it? Like, it was really bad. Like, if anybody knew about it, I'd be in the newspaper. He wants us to impose on his grace. Now, some of you in here, and I'm not going to say you're church people, but you did show up at church on a Sunday. 
we assume that because God is this gracious, then therefore a bunch of people in here are now going to go do all this bad sinning stuff. And we have no understanding of the power of God's grace. It actually turns out that to the degree we misunderstand God's grace, it's harder to not sin. And to the degree we understand the overflowing nature of God's grace, it moves us out of affection for God to not sin. We think if God is gracious, we're going to sin more. The opposite is true. People who think God is stingy sins more. Sin more? You, you fix the grammar in your head. It is not going to create dirty, rotten sinners if God is as gracious as the Bible says he is. In fact, the Bible says his grace is sufficient for us to not only handle the effects of sin in our life, but also to draw us into Christ-likeness. I would suggest you will overcome sin more readily when you, will better under, when you better understand God's overwhelming position of grace toward you. He looks forward to the times you come and impose on his nature. God, in fact, is pleased that, God, that Moses knows him to such a degree that he comes in and imposes on him. God, I know what you're like. You're gracious and forgiving. Forgive those yahoos. And God is pleased that Moses has figured that out about him. I'm going to make a hypothetical here. And, and I could be off the rails, so if you want to call heresy on me, just hold up the H card. I hope it stands for heresy. Um, the people staying in their tents and worshiping. I wonder what would have happened if somebody would have said out there at the tent door, said, you know what? I know what God is like. I bet you he would be pleased if I walked over there. I, I think I can go over there. I wonder what would happen if I imposed on his grace. God is pleased to be known by Moses, to show his goodness, and in fact, to reveal his name. Look what happens to Moses after this incident. Moses says, show me your glory. That's on the little card that we passed out. And God said, I will make my goodness pass before you. And God says, you will get to see my form. He puts him into the cleft of a rock, puts his hand in front of his face, and he walks by, and Moses gets to see the backside of God, his form. And God declares to Moses his name. God is basically saying this, you have known me and the gracious nature of my loving kindness because you have imposed on me and you have known the way I deal with people, my graciousness and my loving kindness. I am pleased to make myself even more known to you. And God rewards Moses for the imposition on his grace. God is pleased to be seen by Moses, 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 and to reveal the joy of his glory to Moses. Eyes open to the disaster of life with God. Eyes open to life, what life with God could be. And finally, here with Moses, eyes open to the glory of God's grace. A couple of questions by way of closing. What is the payoff in your life for your faith in God? What is the payoff you're hoping for because you have trusted Christ for forgiveness of your sins. What's the payoff? What do you hope to get out of it? Say, so because I believed in Jesus, I hope X happens. Because I believed in Jesus, I hope this is what it is like. Let me give you a couple of things to think about. Is the payoff heaven? Is the payoff avoiding hell? Is the payoff of my life uh, trusting in Christ heaven, we need to remember this from understanding Moses and his relationship with God, heaven is only heaven because God is there, and if you don't want God in heaven, you've missed the point of heaven. Is the payoff of your relationship with God when you die and you go to heaven, or is your payoff what Paul said about his relationship with God, that to be absent from the body is to be, where? Present with the Lord. The payoff of eternal life is eternal life with God himself, not just eternal life where there's lots of gold streets. I want to go to heaven. I hope you want to go to heaven. But to be biblical, we must say the reason heaven is heaven is God is there. The payoff for the Christian life is being where God is. 
How about blessing and security? Is the payoff of life in Christ blessing and security? I hope things go good. I hope I have some security in this life. I hope I'm successful in my work. I'm successful with my family. But the fact is, blessing is only blessing if God gives it. And blessing is only blessing if we see it as an act of God's grace and love. In fact, blessing in the Bible is only those things that occur in our life that result in us knowing God better. We may need to redefine what blessing is. We say blessing is when I get a raise or the bill gets paid off or my kids are obedient or whatever it is you need in your life. And getting sick, losing my job, getting a big bill, car breaking down, these aren't blessings, right? They could be. In fact, more likely those are because they drive us to our knees. What is the payoff of your life in Christ? How about clean living? The payoff of your life in Christ is you don't do naughty things. Or if you've been a Christian long enough, you realize you're not very good at that. So you say, you don't do as naughty of things as you used to do. Your naughty things are now less naughty. That is only useful if it leads to God. And a lot of times our self-righteousness does not lead us to God. It leads us to resent him. And others who can't keep their nose as clean as us. The only way to be made clean is if Jesus makes us clean. And the only way for Jesus to do that is if we trust in him when he moves in our hearts. Jesus makes, him, makes us clean, not our obedience. Our obedience as Christians is merely a response of worship. Jesus, you made me righteous, therefore I want to live your ways, not my ways. Here's the payoff of our life in God with Christ. When you see God, you will never want to see anything else ever again. The payoff of the Christian life is when eyes, our eyes are opened to what God is like, we'll never look away. If God's not the payoff, we've missed the point. God is the payoff for the whole thing. We get the presence of God himself. Eyes open to the disaster of life without God, to what life with God could be, and to the glory of God's grace.